So the first thing I want to do, hello, uh, the first thing I want to do is summarize John Kerr's message from last week. Um, I think I have a, there we go. Um, so essentially his message was this, very good message. Uh, his message was uh, that our money reveals something about our theology. That our understanding of our wealth, our understanding of our possessions is a reflection of our understanding uh, of who our God is. Very good message. And I left, I left chapel uh, last week um, kind of angry because he did too good of a job because um, I'm small that way. And, uh, and I thought, what in the world am I going to say next week? I don't know what I'm doing. Um, John's giving away $2,000, and I'm like, buy coffee at the gas station. It's economical. Um, it's a good idea. Uh, so my job this week is to talk about wealth from a practical perspective, um, <laughs> whatever that means. Um, so naturally, I'm going to the book of Ecclesiastes uh, for my... Um, for my text here. And John, it's funny, John sent me a text, I think last year, he was grading papers from uh, his wisdom lit class. And uh, this was a real text that he sent me. He said, this is from a paper that I'm grading. It seems that a large part of Ecclesiastes purpose is to be the Chad Ragsdale of the Bible. Um, I don't know who this student is, but you are um, immediately my favorite. Um, Now, Solomon is regarded traditionally as the author of Ecclesiastes, as an old man uh, wrote this book. And I figure Solomon knew a little bit about money, just a little bit. Um, you know, the, the wealthiest man on the planet today is Jeff Bezos, who is, um, okay, uh, who is the um, CEO of Amazon and Prince of the Dark Side. And um, he... Uh, He's worth about $130 billion, give or take, um, although he is going through a divorce, so I don't know, that might change. But, um, so he's worth a lot of money. He's worth a lot of money. And I read this statistic that for Jeff Bezos, if he spends $88,000, that's like the average American spending $1. So for him, $88,000 is the equivalent of most of us spending $1. And wealth like that comes fairly close to giving us a picture of the over-the-top affluence of a person like Solomon. The writer of 1 Kings has quite a bit to say about the wealth of Solomon. Uh, 1 Kings actually dedicates not one, not two, but three whole verses in God's holy scripture to just describing the throne that Solomon had built for himself. Solomon was a man, it said, the writer of 1 Kings says, King Solomon was of greater, greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. So who better to ask financial advice from than Solomon? Actually, I uh, did some research this week and I researched the same way you do. I went to Google and, um, and I found a website that was, uh, the, the title of the website was Nine Lessons on Finances and Success from King Solomon. I thought that was adorable. Uh, now some of, some of the things on the website were actually really good. I just thought that was kind of a, 
whatever. Um, so that, that set my creative juices going. And I thought, well, what if King Solomon had a financial peace university? So uh, here are the, fi- the, the baby steps for financial freedom, according to King Solomon. Baby step one, become the favored son of King David. Baby step two, I can't, I can't emphasize this enough. This is an important step. Um, you must consolidate and expand your power. Don't let your older brother push you around. Um, and if you need to, get some help from your mom along the way. It's an important, that's an underrated step right there, actually. Uh, baby step three, build yourself a sweet palace. Baby step four, treat yourself. Um, <laughs> I mean, for real, make silver as common as stones, treat gold like it's a woman with shiplap, put it everywhere. I mean, every place gets gold. Treat yourself, import some apes and baboons, an underrated step, but still an important baby step. And then baby step six, grow old and realize it's all hebel. Now that's a Hebrew word. It's one of my favorite Hebrew words. Um, It's a word that's translated meaningless or vanity. About 30 times in the book of Ecclesiastes, this word appears. And King Solomon, as an old man, reflecting back on his life, reflecting on his wealth, his power, his privilege. I denied myself nothing, he says. And at the end of his life, he realizes, he looks back on it all, and he says, it was nothing but hebel. It was a puff of air. It was a vapor. It didn't really provide any substance or meaning to my life. Now, you can't make wise choices with anything unless you first understand its true nature. And so wisdom with our wealth, I think, has to begin with this basic understanding of what wealth really is. But with that firmly in mind, with that firmly in mind, I think we actually can identify a few key principles from the book of Ecclesiastes that might help us in this topic. At least that's what I'm hoping this morning. Um, And here's the first thing that I derive from Ecclesiastes, especially Ecclesiastes chapter five is where I'm gonna be spending most of my time. Um, The first point I wanna make is this, Uh, work for your money. Work for your money. Ecclesiastes 5.18 says, this is what I observe to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life that God has given them, for this is their lot. Now, on the surface, I've got to admit, this verse seems almost sarcastic. Um, So imagine an Amazon warehouse, okay? And all the workers are toiling away in the warehouse doing... I got to confess, I don't know what goes on in an Amazon warehouse, but um, I imagine, I imagine they're, they're like experts on boxes. Wouldn't you think? I mean, you're working in Amazon. Like, do you think they impress people at parties like with their knowledge of boxes? I don't know. That's, I digress. Um, so all these workers are toiling away in an Amazon warehouse, and all of a sudden, Jeff Bezos shows up. And his message to his workers is, dear workers, I encourage you to find pleasure in your toilsome work under the sun. And you're sitting there and you're thinking, thanks, dude. Which one of your 20 helicopters did you fly in to get here today? Um, It just doesn't resonate very clearly with us, what Solomon is saying here. But, but, the Hebrew word that's used for satisfaction in this verse, it only occurs two times in the entire book of Ecclesiastes. 
The other time is actually in a similar passage. It's in Ecclesiastes 3.11. Here's what we read. It says, God has made all things beautiful in their time. That's how it's translated in chapter 3. God has made all things beautiful in their time. Finding satisfaction in your work is a beautiful gift. There's almost, it almost seems like there's a wistfulness about Solomon in this passage. It's as if he recognizes something in other people that has evaded him. That there's something deeply rewarding about working with diligence for your wages. And in scripture, and I think you probably know this, but in scripture, work is a good thing. Work is a God-ordained thing. In scripture, especially in wisdom literature, diligence is wise. Laziness is foolishness. In scripture, there's a connection between work and wages. Read James chapter 5, for instance. In James 5, he has some absolutely brutal words for wealthy people who have denied their workers their wages. All of this is to say that the first piece of wisdom is, is simply this. If you want to keep money from making you miserable, earn it. Find satisfaction in honest work. Some of the most miserable people are those who are wealthy without work or are those who want to get wealthy but refuse to work. Number two, do not merely work for money. Do not merely, so work for your money, but do not merely work for money. Ecclesiastes chapter five, again, starting in verse 13, here's what he says. I've seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners or wealth lost through some misfortune so that when they have children, there is nothing left for them to inherit. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands which sounds similar to Paul's words in 1 Timothy 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, both of these passages, both in, in 1 Timothy and also in Ecclesiastes 5, both of these passages are making two similar points. The first point is this. Money can't make you happy over the long run because you literally can't take it with you. Now, reflect a little bit on the surprising aspect of an ancient king being willing to admit that, that you can't take any of your wealth with you. And, be, and so that's the first reason. The second reason is because when you're obsessed with just earning money from your work, you will never have enough of it. You'll always feel broke because if your only objective is to make more money, you'll always feel like I don't have money enough. I'm always feeling just a little bit broke. You see, there are other purposes, and this is a lesson you need to learn like right now. There are other purposes for your work than merely making some money so that you can buy more stuff. There are higher purposes for your work than just that. And Solomon warns us of that. Paul warns us of that. Those who have desired just to get rich, they fall into a trap. 
they end up miserable. Here's the next piece of wisdom. So work for your money, but don't merely work for money. Here's the next piece of wisdom. Enjoy your money. Enjoy it. Ecclesiastes 5.19. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. One of the sneaky ways that money exerts control over us is when we neglect to enjoy what we've earned. Now, sometimes it's because we have this false sense of piety. Like the size of a person's TV is inversely related to their relationship with Christ. So you walk into their living room and you see, oh, you've got the 75-inch model. I'll, I'll pray for you. But only after we watch this game together. Or the other reason is just because, frankly, we're cheap. Um, and I know that my wife is here this morning, and I'm realizing this sermon will cost me money. <laughs> but it is okay to enjoy your money. I know it's not a message that we're used to hearing, but it is okay. And there's a theological reason for this. If I give my child a gift... If I give my kid a gift, it brings me delight to see him delighting in it. And so when we acknowledge God's blessing in our lives, it also frees us to enjoy those blessings. Wisdom, here's the thing, wisdom marks a path between hoarding our wealth and also spending ourselves into poverty and debt it navigates a path between those two extremes. And money can only really be enjoyed when it's enjoyed with wisdom. Here's the next piece of wisdom though. Enjoy your money, but do not look to money for joy. There's a difference. Ecclesiastes 5.10, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. The word there is hebel. It's meaningless. It's chasing after the wind. It's a bit like this. Imagine you stumble across a big, a deep pit, a deep well, and your desire is to fill in that well. You don't want anybody to accidentally stumble into it. And so you need to fill up this well, and you're going to fill up this well with bricks. But every brick you put into this well doesn't fill up the well. It makes it deeper. And the reason why is you're using the bricks to actually add bricks to the wall of the well instead of filling up the well with those bricks. And that is, that's the seduction of wealth. We think that what we take in is going to satisfy us. We think that what we take in is ultimately going to leave us content, but it doesn't. It, were, it makes us more discontent because we're actually adding bricks to the, to the walls of the well, making that pit deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. It's perverse that money is so easily acquainted with joy and happiness because it's so demonstrably untrue. There's an author, his name is Arthur Brooks. And Arthur Brooks has done empirical research on happiness. Yes, there is such a thing called happiness studies. Um, and he's done empirical research on happiness. 
And he's discovered that there's a bit of a formula for happiness, empirically speaking. The data says that there are four factors that contribute to a person's happiness. Four factors. In study after study after study. You want to know what these four factors are? Yes, Chad, we do. Okay, um, so <laughs> here, are these, here are the four factors. The first factor is this, faith. They've found that there is a correlation between a person's active faith and happiness. Participation in faith, participation in um, church. There's a, there's a correlation between that and happiness. The second factor is family. Deep relationships with close family contribute, um, empirically contribute to a person's happiness. The third thing is uh, friendships. Deep, abiding, close friendships contribute to a person's happiness. And the fourth thing um, is what he calls meaningful work. Now, that doesn't mean work that makes you wealthy necessarily. It's work that is meaningful, work that you find meaning in. That is another factor that contributes to a person's happiness. What's interesting is none of these four factors have anything to do with money or wealth. There's no statistical correlation between how much money a person has and how happy they actually are. It's only at the outer extremes of extreme affluence and extreme poverty. It's only at the outer extremes where they start to notice a correlation between a lack of wealth and a lack of happiness. It's only at the outer extremes, which actually reminds me of a verse in the book of Proverbs. In Proverbs chapter 30, um, he, he actually, the author of Proverbs gives us this bit of wisdom. He says, give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may, I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Give me only my daily bread. Allow me to be content in that and not to look for my money and possessions to provide me joy because that is a game you will never win. Here's the next bit of wisdom. Control your money, but don't allow your money to control you. Ecclesiastes 5.11, as goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? And then the next verse, verse 12, the sleep of the laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much, but as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. Got their money on their mind. Um, a person controlled by his wealth will be anxious and sleepless. Wealth is a master that offers no peace. Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 7, provides a bit of a summary on the topic. He says, everyone's toil is for their mouth, yet their appetite is never satisfied. You and I, we live in a culture that famously celebrates, even worships, autonomy and freedom. Yet we're completely blind to just how enslaved we have become to our insatiable appetite for more stuff. Yet we think we're free. It's a myth. We find ourselves um, stuck in a consumption industry. According to a study done uh, by the Federal Reserve, 40% of adults in America 
the, supposed, the supposedly richest nation on the face of the earth in all of history, 40% of adults in America said they could not cover a $400 unexpected expense and had to either borrow or sell something to get out of the situation. And it's not because so many people are living in poverty, it's because we don't control our wealth, our wealth has controlled us. And so we're in this sort of consumption industry, this consumption cycle. We find ourselves locked into it. And here's, here's how that works. Here's how the consumption cycle works. It starts with this first point. It actually starts with manufacturing. The manufacturing industry has made it possible to produce goods more than what we can actually consume, more than what an individual can actually consume which led to then the creation of the retail industry. We, had, we were creating all these new goods and, and uh, all, these, all these fun things. We didn't have enough people to consume them. So we need a new industry, the retail industry, to be charged with selling all this excess stuff that we've made. Well, that led then to the third industry, which is the advertising industry. The advertising industry was born out of the retail industry. How do we get people to actually show up at our buildings and buy our stuff? Well, what we've got to do is we've got to create an imperative for them. We've got to make it seem like the stuff we're selling is really stuff that they need. And so that old phone that you've got, oh, pity you. You need a new phone. How could you possibly survive without a new phone? You're wearing those shoes. Those shoes are six months old. Oh. You need a new pair of shoes. Do you use that language? You notice how subtle the language of need creeps into our vocabulary? I need this. Where did that need language come from? It's because we've, we've actually bought into this consumption imperative. And a lot of that is born from the advertising industry that's kind of manipulated us uh, by creating these new needs. Well, that's led to another industry, which is the credit industry. The problem that we have is how do we afford all this stuff? Oh, well, I have a solution. Here's a plastic card that will allow you to purchase more than you can actually afford. And that leaves us with a mountain of debt and also a mountain of stuff that we don't need. Well, that's okay because there's another industry that's born, been born out of that, which is the storage industry. Now, I'm going to give you some statistics. This, this will blow your mind. Um, the rental industry in the United States is a $38 billion a year industry. This is nearly three times more than Hollywood's box office gross. So the rental industry makes more, three times more than Hollywood does. There are 2.3 billion square feet of rentable space in this country, which means we have enough excess stuff to fill the Sears Tower in Chicago five times over, and we still wouldn't have enough space. But of course, that's not where the cycle ends. The cycle ultimately ends in exactly the location that Ecclesiastes told us it would end. It ends at the dump because all of this stuff that we just were convinced that we had to have, ultimately it's hebel. It ultimately is like chasing after the wind. Wisdom tells us that we have to learn to reject this cycle wherever we can, where our desires are con constantly manipulated and turned into imperatives. Instead, wise people control their wealth in really old fashioned ways like living on a budget. 
I'm sorry. I know that doesn't light your world on fire, but it's true. Like saving at least 10% of your income. I remember I got my first job when I was in fifth grade. Yeah, that's right. Um, I made $7.50 a week cleaning an office space for a guy in our church. And I remember after I got that first job, my mom marched me to our local bank. I opened up a bank account and every week I was depositing 75 cents in the bank and also putting 75 cents in the offering plate because my mom knew, my dad knew that this, this was a habit that had to start young, this habit of saving and giving. Live on a budget, save at least 10% of your income. Don't spend money that you don't buy on stuff that you don't want to impress people that you don't like. I think I heard somebody say that one time. I don't know. Uh, pay off your credit cards every month or cut them up if you keep on falling behind. Or how about this? Wise people control their wealth by making other righteous, old-fashioned decisions like avoiding even the hint of addictive behaviors. Like remaining committed to a marriage. You want to become poor, allow your marriage to fall apart. Like finishing school and getting that degree, one of the worst financial decisions a person can make is drop out of school. A righteous life is its own benefit, but righteous decisions also lead to a significantly better chance of financial stability. Here's my last piece of wisdom. See your money as an opportunity to worship. Do not see your money as an object to worship. Ultimately, the best way to keep money from making you miserable is investing it in a kingdom that can never perish, spoil, or fade. John made this tangibly clear for us last week. And uh, several people had sent in testimonies over the course of the week talking about how they had spent some of that money that John graciously gave away last week. Here are some of the testimonies. Uh, one person bought lunch for a person at Subway. Several people gave large tips to waitresses or baristas. It's a good idea. One couple added $98 to John's $2. I'm not sure they really got, never mind. Um, one couple added $98 to John's $2 and gave a gift to the Waddells. One person multiplied $5 from John into $150 and helped send a high school student to CIY this summer. This is a testimony from one of you in the room. My roommates and I have decided to double our money every Tuesday until May and send it to one of our roommate's coworkers who has been in the hospital. She has a lot of bills to pay and doesn't know Jesus. And so we are going to use this opportunity to show her how the body of Christ works together and that God cares for her. That's awesome. There was a couple here for Tuesday tour last week and uh, they, they sent in a testimony. I wanted to tell you what we did with the money that we picked from the basket. Collectively, we had $7. The Lord put a little girl on my heart right away. This little girl, Haley, started coming to VBS at our church, but her family did not attend. This year, she has been coming to Sunday school by herself. Her parents would drop her off and then pick her up when it was over. Did I mention that Haley is in the fourth grade? She has a heart for Jesus and longs to be loved. And so I, I saw Haley on Monday morning at school after dropping off my son. She gave me her usual big hug and announced, you know what? Wednesday is my birthday. I thought to myself, we should get her something. And then we heard your message. We all agreed to pool our money and add some of our own to buy Haley a beautiful dress for her birthday. She loves dresses. 
Wednesday evening uh, came around and we knew that uh, we knew she would be at church for the final night of our children's ministry program. I pulled her aside and told her I had something for her. Her jaw dropped as she opened her gift. I took a few pictures to record her emotion. Thank you for the opportunity and the encouragement. It's always remarkable to me how good it always feels to give. Have you ever, have you ever uh, heard someone tell a generosity story with regret? Oh, bought that girl that dress. It's like two cups of coffee could have had. Like nobody talks about generosity that way. There's a joy that can only be accessed by giving that just isn't available when we're consuming. And so it really makes, we, it makes you wonder why we persist in being so resistant to give when it actually brings so much joy. One of the really important things that John said last week is that giving is a habit. And if you don't cultivate that habit when you have little, you will never have enough when, you're, when you'll actually feel comfortable enough to give. It's a habit. It's a little bit like those couples, you know who they are, they claim they'll get married, but only after they feel like they've, they've become established enough together. Nine times out of 10, those couples never end up getting married because you never feel quite established enough. So I wanna issue this challenge to you today. I want you to plant your flag in kingdom work right now. I want you to find that little piece of the kingdom and I want you to fight for it. And I want you to start fighting for it right now. Um, and I'm gonna give you uh, an example of this. Um, I believe very strongly in the mission of this school. Um, and I would believe very strongly in the mission of this school even were I not to teach at this school. Um, and I think you feel the same way, that the mission of this school is God honoring and it's important. It's important. Um, well, you probably also know that 20% of our budget is covered by generous individuals and churches. 20% of our operating budget is it's not covered by tuition or room and board. It's actually covered by people who have given to the school, allowing us to keep costs as low as we can. So what about supporting the mission of this college after you've graduated? What about that? 